Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 438, Robert's Rebellion. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Phoebe, Floyd, and Jared for signing up already. One time, when I was about six, I got really mad at my parents. I can't remember what it's about, but I do remember my solution. I decided I was done with this janky family and their drama, and so I was going to run away. I marched into my room, prepared as best as I could with the knowledge that I had, which at this point came almost exclusively from cartoons. And so I got a big stick, I found a bandana, I tied the cloth into a knapsack at the end of the stick, and into that knapsack went some Hot Wheels, a couple Star Wars action figures, fruit roll-up, and because the journey ahead of me was surely going to be a long one, I also put in one of those little cheese and cracker packets where they give you like a plastic spatula to spread the cheese. So, you know, all the things that a young man of six would need for a hard life on the road. And with my supplies secured, I marched out the front door, ready to begin my life as a wanderer. And I made it about to the end of the driveway before I realized I was way in over my head. As I recall, I spent about an hour at the edge of the front yard eating snacks, and trying to work out how I was going to walk this whole thing back. And when there was no more cheese, I sullenly stomped back inside, because it was cold out there, and I was getting hungry. We all have these moments. Childhood isn't exactly dignified, and the relationships between parents and their children can get tricky. Fortunately, when the family estate is just a two-bedroom ranch in the dodgy end of the city... Well, the stakes can only get so high, but when the family estate is a good chunk of northern France and all of England, well, then it gets a bit more dicey. And when Robert rode out of his father's encampment on that fateful night in 1078, I'm sure there was an initial period of exhilaration. He had just defied his father. He defied his king. And if you think about it, he had no king. He was a knight errant. And that had glorious adventure written all over it. But I wonder if reality began to set in a few hours down the road. Because Robert had just abandoned his inheritance. And that left him with only three options as to what to do now. He could return back to his father's court. But now with his honor and position even worse than it had been before... He could live as a knight errant, which is a term that translates into wandering knight, which certainly does sound exciting, but the reality of that lifestyle would come along with a substantial decrease in his lifestyle. Or he could launch a rebellion against his own father, who also happened to be one of the most successful and feared military commanders in Western Europe. Now, As Robert weighed his options, he did have a few advantages that I, as a six-year-old boy living in the sketchy part of Portland, lacked. For one, he was a grown man with skills that could sustain him on the road. 
And beyond that, as a knight in his mid-twenties, he was expected to be out there making a name for himself anyway. So while this move seems to have come about in a fit of pique, it was also pretty much in line with his culture and its expectations. This was the modern equivalent of like a 19-year-old today getting into a huge fight with his parents, moving out, and then going to college. Furthermore, Robert had a squad. And while I did have friends at six, they weren't exactly live life as a drifter to back up your buddy's fight with his dad kind of friends. Robert's friends, however, were exactly that type. They were also wealthy and politically well-positioned. So he was riding down the road with the up-and-coming heirs to prominent noble families. And that meant that in addition to Robert's political status and connections, he also had access to his companion's political status and connections. On top of that, no one had seen this coming, and they'd managed to get out of town without being seen, which meant they had the element of surprise. Which, actually, I suppose is an advantage I also had. But Robert was a knight, leading a company of other knights. So surprise was much more of an advantage for him than it was for me. And that advantage was the one they decided to use first. And they rode hard for the center of Norman political life. Rouen. The fact was that William was in a precarious position. He was facing political and military headwinds for the first time in his adult life. So if Robert could strike hard and fast and take Rouen, well, that might be enough to show William that it was time to let go of Normandy. And if he couldn't convince dear old dad to do that, well, the move would still burnish Robert's reputation in the global arena. The Lords of France would have to admit that he wasn't just some short, chubby, rich kid. He was a force to be reckoned with. And Rouen was just about 30 miles away, about a day's ride on horseback which was an entirely manageable distance for a group of young knights. So they rode hard through the night. As dawn broke in the town of Leglay, William and the boys discovered that Robert and his companions were gone. But the king didn't seem all that concerned about it. I mean, it was Robert. What exactly was the little fella gonna do? So, at least in public, William brushed the whole thing off. And actually, it may have been a relief to get the sibling rivalry out of the camp, so that way he could focus on the task at hand with the support of Rufus and Henry, who were remaining by his side. Because of course they were. And actually, Rufus wasn't just content to be seen with his father here. He also made sure to loudly and regularly express outrage over his brother's rash and disloyal behavior. And what amuses me about that is that Orderic, and therefore later historians like Frank Barlow, kind of take this at face value. They see Rufus and Henry's presence with William as some sort of proof of their loyalty. And others have gone so far as to wonder why they didn't join their brother's rebellion. And I think that's a good example of where the study of history can really stumble if we're not careful. Because when we zoom in too close to a moment or focus too closely on just one individual, we can lose important context. Because it's clear that Rufus would never have joined Robert. We're repeatedly told about Rufus's ambition. And so while he could have ridden off for Robert, why would he? If Robert's rebellion was successful, Rufus would be nothing more than the brother of the guy who got everything. 
Hell, the fact that Robert was bragging that he wasn't going to share anything with his younger siblings was the reason Rufus had peed on the guy in the first place. Speaking of that, even if Rufus wanted to join the rebellion, do you think Robert would have allowed him to join after, you know, all that peeing? None of it makes any sense to me. And honestly, if Rufus wasn't a shoo-in as the heir to the throne before Robert's flight, he had to have been now. So it seems plainly obvious to me that everyone here was making a play for lands and titles, and Rufus's best move, politically, would have been to stay at his father's side and loudly complain about his disloyal older brother, which is exactly what he did. Meanwhile, as the sun rose in Rouen, the king's butler, Roger Davery, was in command. And when Roger saw Robert and his companions approaching, he sensed something was off. Now, I want to imagine that this was because a witch had warned Roger that this day would come, or maybe had some kind of amazing prophetic dream, because those stories are always super fun. But chances are, Davery was just a Norman noble, and as such, he'd had long experience dealing with other Norman nobles. I mean, the king's firstborn son had been openly discontent and had been absolutely clear about his desire to gain control of Normandy. And chivalric succession politics during this period were fluid, corrosive, and explosive. I mean, nobody, including Robert, knew precisely what he'd end up with after William died. And that created some rather perverse incentives for the children of nobles. And so... My guess is that the king's butler knew through long experience that a noble heir showing up unannounced, accompanied by his boys, well, that meant something was about to go down. And so Orderick tells us that the butler, quote, having anticipated the plot, put up the fortifications in order to resist the treasonable enterprise, end quote. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds like Robert and his boys managed to enter the city. But when they tried to take the tower, they found it locked up and heavily defended. Orderick then tells us that Devery, having pushed back the would-be rebels, dispatched messengers to William to, quote, apprise him of the state of affairs, end quote. And that put Robert in quite a pickle, because now the cat was well and truly out of the bag. The moment that he attacked Rouen, he was in open rebellion. He had spent his element of surprise and he had nothing to show for it. Honestly, after getting his butt kicked by Jeeves, he looked even more like a loser than he had done the day before, which is saying a lot since he was peed on the day before. And now he only had a short period of time to figure out what to do next before dad heard about this and responded in a classically dad way. So Robert had to move and quickly. About a day later, Devery's messenger arrived at William's encampment, and naturally, the king absolutely lost it and ordered, quote, all the malcontents to be arrested, end quote. And that's significant because chief among those malcontents was his own son. But the king made his decree, and so riders were sent carrying word of it throughout Normandy. This had become an all-points bulletin. Robert and his bros were wanted men. And Orderick tells us that this caused quite a bit of anxiety among the fellas. And for good reason. 
I mean, William wasn't a forgiving man at the best of times, and this was not the best of times. There's also the fact that the man ordering this was William. And say what you want about his behavior, his morals, or his leadership style. This was a guy who tended to get what he wanted. Was it skill? Was it luck? Was it God's favor? Who cares? Whatever it was, it made him dangerous. And it appears that panic overtook some of Robert's companions and that they fled the group. I say that because we're told that some of his group were taken by the king's officers, while others fled to foreign countries in search of refuge. Others, including Robert. See, it turns out Robert did the thing that his father probably least expected. He fled to the exact region that William was preparing to invade. And once there, he met with the regional noble, Hugh de Chateauneuf on Timuray. And Hugh probably couldn't believe his luck because a minute ago, he was facing invasion. But now, the Normans were at it again. And not wanting to get in the way of whatever passed for culture up there in Normandy, Hugh decided to do the neighborly thing and help the kid out by installing him in a castle at Remyard, which just happened to be 25 miles south of William's camp. If the bastard wanted to launch his invasion now, he'd have to go through his own firstborn son. And interestingly, while Remyard is about a day's ride from Normandy, it's also about a day's ride from another of Hugh's rivals, Count Retru, who had been expanding his reach thanks to a friendly relationship with the King of France. So Robert was given free reign of the castle, and all he'd need to do in exchange is raid Hugh's enemies. Now, keep in mind that this had all started while William was preparing for a campaign. So we can assume it was either very early in the campaigning season or even just prior to it. As such, it's a reasonable guess that Robert left his father's company and attacked Rouen in early spring and then began raiding shortly thereafter. Which means that Robert, newly established in his castle, probably had the whole campaigning season ahead of him. And so he marshaled his supporters and unleashed his daddy issues upon the Norman frontier and the lands of Ellen Sin. According to Malmesbury, Robert, quote, harassed his country by perpetual attacks, end quote, which sounds serious. But maybe it wasn't, because he also adds that William's response to this was to laugh and to say, quote, by the resurrection of God, this little Robin Shortboot will be a clever fellow. End quote. And Malmesbury seems to take pity upon Robert here because he points out that his father attacked his height because, quote, there was nothing else to find fault with as he was neither ill-made nor deficient in eloquence, nor was he wanting in courage or resources of mind, end quote. Basically, according to Malmesbury, he was a solid heir, but... There was just something about Robert that rubbed William the wrong way, which meant that poor Robert wanted the respect of a man who probably had no intention of ever giving him any. At most, maybe Robert could gain William's animosity, but never his respect. But unfortunately, the one person who didn't know that was Robert. Or maybe he didn't care and had another goal in mind. 
Whatever was motivating him, though, Robert's company started to expand. He was gaining new recruits who were leaving the king's service and, quote, left their towns and rich farms for vain hopes and worthless promises, end quote. But keep in mind that the difference between a worthless promise and a grant of lordship often comes down to whether or not a war goes your commander's way. And it seems that not everyone found this rebellion as funny as the king did. Because some of his own noblemen were convinced enough that it could succeed that they decided to gamble their futures by joining this damn thing. And that finally got William's attention. In response, he declared Robert's followers traitors and deserters, and he seized their properties. And that's significant because, as you know, Robert had gathered many of the up-and-coming nobles to his side. So we're not talking about the seizure of a shanty on the edge of the woods. We're talking about the king taking direct possession of big estates and villages, as well as the incomes and military service that they provided. And Orderick tells us that after seizing the rebel nobles' properties, William used that income to pay the wages of his own army. Meaning that these rebels were essentially paying for the army that was being raised and deployed against them. Now, unfortunately, we're not told specifics about what the army did, nor of what Robert's men were doing. Merely that Robert's men were raiding and the army was raised and marched. But Orderick says that whatever these two groups were doing and whatever fighting took place, it got really out of hand. Quote, the inhabitants of the country and their neighbors flew into arms in every quarter, either for or against the king. The French, the Bretons, the Angevins, and other people fluctuated in their opinions and knew not what side they ought to take, end quote. So, you know, it was a civil war in chivalric France. And as such, Normandy quickly found itself threatened with the possibility of war on all sides. Orderick even provides a short account of four knights assassinating one of the king's stewards, who they accidentally happened upon while on the road. So now it wasn't just armies marching and raiding through the countryside. There are also small groups of knights carrying out random assassinations. And people wonder why I'm so negative about chivalry. But for as bad as this was, it wasn't catastrophic. At least, it wasn't for William. Because he still had substantial political influence within Europe. He was, after all, a duke and a king who had held a leadership role in continental politics since he was a child. So he had a lot of connections on the continent. And while he had certainly rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and made plenty of enemies, this was also chivalric France. A nobleman in this society couldn't throw a rock without hitting someone that was both an ally and also someone they had a beef with. And when Hugh ordered Robert to attack the lands of Count Rotru, that gave William an opportunity. Because while Rotru was an ally of the King of France, who hated William, Rotru and William had been on good terms in the past. So good, in fact, that Rotru's own son had fought at Hastings. Now, Orderick was no fan of Rotru. He was actually convinced that the reason why this guy was deaf was because the count was so wicked that God took time out of his busy schedule to personally ruin the guy's hearing. Like, he really hated Rotru. But William wasn't so picky about his allies. 
especially these days. And it seems that Retru, for his part, was getting pretty sick of all these raids and also the general chaos that Short Pants was causing. So, quote, King William took him into his pay, employing him with his own troops, end quote. And together, they marched upon Robert's stronghold of Remyard and occupied four castles in the area. Turns out that a chivalric society built upon siege warfare resulted in a bunch of spare castles. And by occupying those castles, William and Retru were effectively putting Robert into a vice. In response, Robert and his companions bolted. But he wasn't out of the fight yet. You see, while chivalric culture had allowed William to quickly acquire an ally to deal with his rebellious son, chivalric culture was a knife that cut both ways. And William wasn't the only person who could wield it. And when Robert once again appears in our story, he's in Flanders, meeting with another Robert, Count Robert the Frisian. And these Roberts really had something important in common. It turns out they both hated William. Not only that, but Count Robert was a close ally of King Philip of France, who also hated William. So if you are a Norman rebel looking to recruit support for your war against William, Flanders was the place to be. It was also a major hotbed for a new cultural phenomenon that was sweeping through continental Europe. An event that captured the imaginations of large portions of the medieval public. And it still does today. It was this wild fad called the tournament. Well, actually, they didn't call it the tournament back then. It had a different name. Actually, several different names by this point. And we're going to get deeper into this in an upcoming members episode. But for our purposes today, just know that a new sport had come on the scene. And while military games were nothing new, the growth of chivalry brought a whole new level of competitive spectacle to this arena. Knights of all stations were meeting regularly to test their skills and to show off to others. And people were coming to watch. A lot of people. And the beginnings of what would later become known as the tournament happens in Normandy, Picardy, and it was especially becoming popular in Flanders. So, if you're a knight errant who wanted to make a name for yourself, if you wanted cred, if you wanted fame, if you wanted followers who would be good in a fight and might help you gain a title, well, you better get your ass down to the melee field and whack someone across the head with something heavy. Touring these events was a bit like being seen at Medieval Studio 54. Everybody who was anybody in knightly culture was there. So chances are, that when Robert was recruiting supporters in Flanders, he was also making an appearance at the various tourneys that took place in the region. I mean, he would have been crazy not to do that. It was a quick way to increase your standing and to gather new followers. We will, we will Meanwhile, in Normandy, well, even after all of this downright treason demonstrated by his firstborn, William still seemed to assume that this whole thing would just blow over. Or maybe he didn't, but he thought the best course of action was to treat the whole thing like a joke, a sort of negative PR campaign that could put a wet blanket over anyone who was thinking about joining up themselves. I mean, no one wants to join a joke. Either way, William was underreacting, and he chose instead 
to focus on other things, kingly things. You see, not everything revolved around Normandy, nor his sons, nor their unsanitary behavior that spawned entire rebellions. There was also the matter of England. And the fact was that the English loved a good rebellion. And this whole mess with Robert very well could inspire yet another English revolt. But thankfully, as a Norman ruler, William had a solution for that. Castles. The Normans really had been cranking out the damn things at a tremendous rate. And when you want the highest number of castles in the shortest amount of time, what you want are wooden Mountain Bailey castles. These were really effective, and they'd successfully held off multiple English rebellions. However, being that they were made out of wood, their keeps had one very significant drawback. You could set them on fire. Not only that, but they were constructed for the purposes of warfare, not kingship. So they were a bit utilitarian, not grand, not comfortable, and absolutely not sexy. So William was ready for an upgrade. He wanted something that could function not only as a military stronghold, but also as a palace. He wanted something sturdy that would be damn near impossible to bring down, but would also telegraph his power across the land. Something that would get it through the minds of these filthy Englishmen that this crown was staying on his head permanently. He wanted a stone fortress, and he wanted it to be huge. Not English huge. No, huge even by continental standards of the time. A fort that would rival even the largest keeps of the era. And to build him one, he tasked the Bishop of Rochester, who was recently brought over and installed in the bishopric at Lamfranc's request. And this new bishop's name was Gundolf, no relation. And in addition to his ministerial abilities, it turned out the old priest was also an architect. And it's right about now, as Robert began his life as a professional party boy rebel, and Rufus closed in on his move to become the heir, that Gundolf, along with a bunch of other architects and builders, began construction on a new stone fortress on the bank of the Thames. Eventually, it would become known as the White Tower. Meanwhile, back in Flanders, Robert Curthose was actually playing the game quite well. I mean, he must have been, because he'd made an ally of Robert the Frisian, and he was now installed along with his followers in the castle of Gebrois, which was right across the border from Normandy. So short pants was no longer a laughing matter for William. This little chubby ingrate was making friends with William's enemies. He had Frisian support, and even worse, he had the approval of King Philip of France. And Malmesbury tells us that Philip was quite interested in this family spat. Apparently, he hated William enough that the French king was assisting the rebellion. And Worcester echoes this, telling us that Robert was, quote, supported by Philip, made frequent inroads into Normandy, plundering and burning the villes, and destroying the people, so that he occasioned his father no little loss and anxiety, end quote. So Tiny Britches was out there kicking a lot of ass and costing a lot of money for William. And actually, even the acquisition of Gerbois suggests that King Philip was giving Robert quite a lot of leeway and perhaps even direct support by this point. 
And that was an existential threat to William, on top of the raids that Robert was launching into his lands. So he couldn't ignore it any longer. Allowing this to continue was a political, social, military, and even familial disaster for the king. And so, even though it was winter, not exactly the weather that you want for campaigning, William assembled his army and he marched against his son for the second time in a year. And here is where the chivalry really gets cranked up to 11. You see, while King Philip appears to have been positive towards Robert's fight against his father, that was before William assembled an army and marched. And Philip couldn't ignore the fact that Robert's rebellion and the raids that followed were destabilizing the region. And if King Philip thought that the raids were creating too much chaos, then he definitely didn't want a full-blown war to be fought in his lands. So as soon as William started marching, it was clear that this had to be resolved and quickly. And while Philip and William weren't exactly on the best of terms, it doesn't look like either man was interested in getting into a direct war with each other right now. And that left Philip with two choices. Either allow the fight to continue and risk substantial losses within his own properties, or help William resolve the fight with his son. And King Philip chose door number two. We don't have any surviving documents, if there were any, of the negotiations between these rival kings. But they must have been delicate. And we're not talking letters. These negotiations were events in and of themselves. We see significant political and ecclesiastical figures being present alongside the two rulers. And it's hard to imagine that they were there just to take in the scenery. They must have been there to assist in the negotiations. And eventually, an accord was struck, and the kings agreed to march against William's firstborn son, together. And the combined force immediately besieged the castle of Gebrois. But sieges can be slow going. So while they were waiting, the kings kept themselves busy by handling matters of state. We actually have a surviving charter from this period that specifically mentions that it was drafted while William and Philip were besieging Robert Curthose. And what's interesting about this charter is that Philip and William were both listed as kings. And I have to imagine that Philip wasn't thrilled about William, who was his vassal in France, being listed as a king rather than as a duke. And recognizing William's royal status may have been part of whatever bargain they struck. But ultimately, the siege dragged on for about three weeks before Robert had enough, and he decided to take this fight directly to his father. So he got his boys together, and he rode out of the castle. That's right, we're gonna have father and son meet each other on the battlefield, and ordering, who has been our main source for this story, doesn't tell us anything about the battle. Instead, right here, right in the middle of this narrative about the conflict, he pauses and uses an entire paragraph of ink to complain about the cold and tell us that he needs a rest before calling it a day. I kid you not, he just quits. And the irony of this is that I'm literally writing this episode in the middle of a record-breaking blizzard where the temp has been at negative 10 for days and we've lost power for hours at a time. So f*** you, Orderick, put on a coat and finish the damn story. 
And against all odds, it actually gets worse because eventually, when the weather was warm enough for George R.R. Orderick to start riding again, well, for some reason, he skips this entire situation and instead takes us directly to the aftermath. Yeah, even though Orderick takes two swings at this story, he gives us no details on the most pivotal moment of the entire narrative, other than, you know, the fact that he doesn't like being cold. And so instead, we're left with just the Chronicle and John of Worcester to try and put together the actual battle. And neither of these works gives us much detail. Consequently, unlike Hastings, I can't give you a blow-by-blow blow of what happened here. But however it happened, somehow the armies met in the field. And Philip isn't mentioned, so either our sources lost interest in him or the King of France withdrew from the siege. Either way, though, William and Robert were the main characters in this drama. And while this was long before Battlefield Heraldry, which actually comes out of the tournament, which we'll learn about in later episodes, well, William and Robert still would have been very noticeable on the field, especially to each other. Father and son were well aware of what each other looked like. They also knew each other's armor. And even if they had new armor and new helmets, it would have taken very little effort to spot the person who was commanding the army. And so as he charged out of the castle, Robert would have known exactly where his father was. And remember, they were fighting over Robert's inheritance. Specifically, they were fighting because William said Robert would only get Normandy over his dead body. And it looks like Robert decided to take a page out of his father's Hastings playbook. Because it appears that Robert, like his father, decided to break the norms of warfare and skirt around the battle that was raging in the field so he could charge directly at the king, who was almost certainly watching from the rear with his personal guard. Again, we're not told about the fighting that followed, but we are told that Robert wounded William and killed his horse. And William wasn't alone. It appears that Rufus had accompanied his father on this campaign, because of course he did. A chivalric war against his elder brother had Rufus written all over it. But the reason why we know that Rufus was there is because we're told that, like his father, Rufus was also wounded in the attack. Payback's a bitch. And now, with the king wounded and vulnerable on the ground, and the heir presumptive also wounded, this was Robert's chance. He could end it all right here and get everything he felt he was due. And for some reason, Robert pulled back. He refused to kill his father and instead put his forces into retreat. The guy was on the edge of victory and he just stopped and abandoned the fight entirely. What the hell? And I've got to say something really odd here but I cannot fathom why he didn't kill William. I mean, if this was anyone else, it would be plainly obvious as to why a son wouldn't want to kill his own father. But the bastard? Well, he'd been quite the bastard to Robert. And that's on top of the garbage fire that is Norman culture. So I really don't know what stayed his hand here. I mean, perhaps Robert never intended to kill him in the first place, and he merely wanted to demonstrate his ability and show his father that he wasn't a joke. That could explain why he went back to Flanders. I mean, maybe he expected some sort of future reconciliation. 
thinking that now, after demonstrating his skill in the field, well, that would change things between him and his dad. But this was William. If anything, Robert had just given him another reason to hate him. And the fact that he showed mercy and the fact that Robert didn't even kill Rufus suggests to me that maybe Malmesbury was right about him. And Robert was a decent kind of dude, at least as far as Norman Knights went. Perhaps that's why William and Rufus despised him so much. It's hard to say. Whatever it was, though, William and Rufus, both injured, retreated back to Rouen. And Robert, realizing that he'd overstayed his welcome in Philip's lands, pulled back to Flanders and almost certainly turned his attention towards the terminant culture that was flourishing there. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to meet some fellow history nerds, head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click communities, and join a few. We'll see you there.